0: Chapter Three of *The Secret of the Silver Car* by Wyndham Martin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter Three: The Beginning of the Search. You cried, Private Smith. You God! And I haven't even a match left, so I can see you before we go. I die in better company than I know. Trent could hear that he raised himself slowly and painfully to his feet. Then he heard the soldiers' heels click smartly together. Ave Caesar, he began, but the immortal speech of those gladiators being about to die was not finished. There broke on Trent's astonished gaze a flash of sunlight that made a blink painfully, and the terrifying noise of high explosive hurt his ears, and that swift, dreadful sucking of the air that followed such explosions was about him again in its intensity. He had been dug out of his tomb for what the doctors thought him a very bad case of course he was delirious he stuck to a ridiculous story that he was imprisoned in a tomb with one william smith a private in the seventy eighth battalion of the city of london regiment and that h e had mysteriously disinterred him h e did perform marvels that were seemingly against known natural laws but Private Trent was obviously suffering from shell shock. When he was better and had been removed to a hospital far from the area of fighting, he still kept to his story. One of the doctors who liked him explained that the delusion must be banished. He spoke very convincingly. He explained by latest methods that the unreal becomes real unless the patient gets a grip on himself. He said that Trent was likely to go through life "'trying to find a non-existent friend "'and ruining his prospects in the doing of it. "'I'll admit,' he said at the end of his harangue, "'that you chose your friend's name well.' "'Why do you say that?' Trent asked. "'Because the muster-roll of the 78th "'shows no fewer than 27 William Smiths, "'and they're all of them dead. "'That battalion got into the thick of every scrap that started.' "'Trent said no more,' but made investigations on his own behalf. Unfortunately, there was none to help him. The ambulance that picked him up was shelled, and he had been taken from its bloody interior, the only living soul of the crew and passengers. None lived who could tell him what became of his companion, the man to whom he had revealed his identity, the man who possessed his secret to the full. When he was discharged from the service and was convalescing in Bournemouth, He satisfied himself that the unknown smith had died. Again luck was with Anthony Trent. The one man, with the exception of Sutton, whose lips he was sure were sealed, who could make a clear hundred thousand dollars reward for his capture, was removed from the chance of doing it, even as the knowledge was offered him. The words that he would have spoken, Hail Caesar, I, being about to die, salute thee, had come true in that blinding flash that had brought Anthony Trent back to the world. But even with this last narrow escape to sober him, Trent was not certain whether the old excitement would call and send him out to pit himself against society. He had no grievance against wealthy men as such. What he had wanted of theirs he had taken. He was now well enough off to indulge in the life as a writer he had wanted. He had taken his part in the great war as a patriot should, and was returning to his native land decorated by two governments. Again and again, as he sat at the balcony of his room at the Royal Bath Hotel, and looked over the bay to the cliffs of Swanage, he asked himself this question. Was he through with the old life, or not? He could not answer. But he noticed that, when he boarded the giant Cunarder, he looked about him with the old keenness, the professional scrutiny, the eagerness of other days he tipped the head steward heavily and then consulted the passenger list and elected to sit next to a mrs colliver wife of a troy millionaire she was a dull lady and one who lived to eat but he heard her boasting to a friend on the boat train that her husband had purchased a diamond tiara in bond street which would eclipse anything troy had to offer mrs colliver dreaded to think of the duty that would have to be paid especially as during the war less colors were used than in normal times. It was with a feeling of content that Anthony Trent paced the deck as the liner began her voyage home. Two years was a long time to be away, and he felt that a long lazy month in his main camp would be the nearest thing to the perfect state that he could dream of, when he heard distinctly, without a chance of being mistaken, The voice of Private William Smith shouting a goodbye from the pier. Trent had a curiously sensitive ear. He had never, for example, failed to recognize a voice even distorted over telephone wires. William Smith had one of those distinctive voices of the same timbre and inflection of those of his caste, but with a certain quality that Trent could not now stop to analyze, which stamped it as different. All Trent's old caution returned to him. It was possible that the man whom he had supposed dead had come to see the Cunarder off without knowing Anthony Trent was aboard, but the passenger lists could be inspected, and even now the law might have been set in motion that would take him handcuffed from the vessel at quarantine to be locked up in a prison. He was worth a hundred thousand dollars to any informant, and he could not doubt that the so-called smith had gone wrong because of the lust for money to pay his extravagances was inevitably the reason in men of the class of Smith and Despair. He was obsessed with the determination to find out. He would track the man he had known as Smith, and find out, without letting him be any the wiser. A hundred ideas of disguise flashed across the quick-working brain. He tried to tell himself that it was likely that the voice might have proceeded from an utter stranger. But this was false comfort, he knew. It was Smith of the 78th City of London Regiment who was on the pier, already growing inch by inch farther away. The second officer tried to stop him, and the passenger grasped him by the arm as he climbed the rails, but they tried vainly. He dropped as lightly as he could, and picked himself up a little dazed, and looked around. He could see a hundred faces peering down at him from the moving decks overhead. He could see a crowd of people streaming down the pier to the city, and among them was the man he sought. "'One moment, sir,' said a policeman, restraining him. "'What's the meaning of this?' "'Just come ashore,' Trent smiled. The policeman loomed over him, huge, stolid, ominous. The man looked from Trent in evening dress and without hat or overcoat to the shadowy ship now on our thousand-league voyage, and he shook his head. It was an irregular procedure, he told himself, and as such open to grave suspicion. But he was courteous.' Trent was a gentleman, and no look of fear came to his face when the officer spoke. The man remained close to Trent when he approached the few groups of people still on the pier. To every man in the groups the stranger contrived to ask a question. Of one he asked the time, of another the best hotel in Liverpool. "'It may seem very strange,' said Trent pleasantly to the perplexed policeman, "'but I did an unaccountable thing.' I thought I saw a man who was in the trenches with me in France during the war, and saved my life, and I sprang over the side to find him, and now he's gone. The policeman waved a white-gloved hand to the people who had already left the landing stage. "'Your friend may be there, sir,' he said. "'You don't want to detain me, then?' Trent cried. "'It's dark, sir,' said the policeman, and I could hardly be expected to remember which way you went.' At the end of the short pier was a taxicab stand and a space where private machines might park. Anthony Trent arrived in time to see a huge limousine, driven by a liveried chauffeur, with a footman by his side, begin to climb the steep grade to the street. As it passed him he could swear he heard Smith's voice from within, saying, "'It's the most rotten luck that I should be a younger son and not get the chances Geoffrey does.' Trent could not see the number plate of the big machine. He could note only a coat of arms on the door surmounted by a coronet. He had no time to ask if any of the dock laborers knew the occupants. He sprang into the sole taxi that occupied the stand and commanded the driver to overtake the larger car. So eager was the man to earn the double fare that he was halted by a policeman outside the Atlantic Riverside Station. The time taken up by explanations permitted the coroneted limousine to escape. In so big a city as Liverpool, a car could be lost easily, but the sanguine taxi-driver, certain at least of getting his fare, persisted in driving all over the city and its suburbs until he landed his passenger, tired and disappointed, at the Midland Hotel. On the whole, Anthony Trent had rarely spent such unprofitable hours. He had paid a premium for his state room on a fast boat, and was now stranded in a strange city without baggage. And of course he was worried. He had believed himself alone to have been rescued when the high explosive had taken the roof from his tomb. Now it seemed probable that the British soldier, Smith, had also made his escape. Although it was quite possible Trent was following a stranger whose voice was like that of Private Smith, he had yet to find that stranger and make sure of it. Trent was not one to run away from danger. As he sat in the easy chair before the window, he told himself again and again that it was probable the voice he identified with the unknown smith was like that of a thousand other men of his class. He had acted stupidly, in jumping from a ship's rails and risking his limbs. And how much more unwisely had he acted in that black silence when he was led to cast aside his habitual silence and talk freely to a stranger. In effect, he had put himself in the keeping of another man without receiving any confidence in return. He blamed the wound, the shock, and a thousand physical causes for it, but the fact was not to be banished by that. Smith knew Anthony Trent as a master criminal, while Anthony Trent only knew that Smith has enlisted under another name because he had disgraced his own. It might easily be that this unknown Smith was like a hundred other gentleman rankers, who could only be accused of idleness and instability. But Anthony Trent stirred uneasily when he recalled the eagerness with which Smith spoke of some of those crimes Anthony Trent had committed. Smith knew about them, admired the man who planned them. Trent, on thinking it over for the hundredth time, believed Smith was indeed a crook and as such dangerous to him. Few men believe in intuition, guesswork or hunches as do those who work outside the law. Again and again Anthony Trent had found his hunches were correct. Once or twice he had saved himself by implicitly acting on them, in apparent defiance of reason. At the end of many hours, during which he tried to tell himself he was mistaken, and his voice owned by someone else, he gave it up. He knew it was Smith. To find out by what name the Smith of the dugout went by in his own country, must be the first step the second would be to shadow him observe his way of life and go through his papers so far all he had to go upon was a quick glance at an automobile of unknown make upon whose panels a coat of arms was emblazoned, surmounted by a crown had he possessed a knowledge of heraldry he could have told at a glance whether the coronet was that of a baron viscount earl marquis, or duke and so narrowed down the search And had he observed the coat of arms and motto, he could have made certain, for all armorial bearings are taxable and registered. To try to comb the counties of Lancashire and Cheshire for the occupants of an unknown car would take time and might lead to police interest in his activities. Before he retired to his bed, a courteous agent of the Cunard Company had called upon him to inquire at what he was dissatisfied that he left the ship so suddenly. To this agent he told the same story, the true one, that he had told the policeman. The purser was able to inform the group in the smoking room ere it retired. "'I don't believe that for a moment,' Colliver declared. "'Why not?' asked the Harvard professor. "'Don't you know that truth in the mouth of an habitual liar is often a potent and confounding weapon?' "'Maybe,' Colliver said dryly. "'But I'm an honest man.' "'and I'd like to know why you think that man Trent was an habitual liar.' "'I don't know,' the professor answered amiably. "'I always think in terms of crime on board ship.' "'There's no need to on this ship,' the purser said testily. "'I hope not,' said the professor. "'But coming back from the Far East last year on another line, "'I made friends with a man much of the build of Mr. Colliver here. "'I did not like him very much.' He had only prejudices and no opinions. A typical successful man of business, I presume. Thank you, said Mr. Colliver, finding one of his own neck adornments growing tight. He was murdered, the theologian went on, because he carried some diamonds for his wife in a pocket. Some thieves found it out. What thieves? Colliver demanded. It is one of the undiscovered murders on the high seas, the professor said placidly. "'Mighty awkward for you,' Colliver said, still angry. "'Fortunately, I had an alibi,' said the other. "'I was violently ill of mer." "'Mighty convenient,' Coliver commented. Later he asked the purser's private opinion of the professor. Myers Irving joined with Colliver in resenting the professor's attack on businessmen. "'Ordinarily,' Colliver said, "'I don't like advertising men, but you're different,' "'They are like vultures after my account as a rule.' "'You'd have to force your account on me,' said Myers Irving, seriously. "'I am not an ordinary business or advertising man. "'Primarily I am a business builder. "'I leave nothing to underlings. "'I direct everything personally. "'I take few accounts. "'If my clients don't make good on their end of it, I give them up. "'I make money for my clients. "'I have no other ambition. "'I believe in advertising.' "'It might be that fellow Trent jumped ashore for some publicity stunt. "'Supposing he said he did it because he forgot to order some special dish "'at the Adelphi or Midland. "'Such a dish would get more publicity than he could shake a stick at. "'But I'm not here to talk shop.' "'Culliver watched the trim advertising man saunter off. "'A bright boy,' commented the Troy magnate. "'Maybe he'll be surprised before this trip is over. "'Maybe he'll have to talk shop.' Captain Sutton listened to the person's explanation, as though they were entirely reasonable. But all the time he said to himself, "'Why need he have been afraid of me?' Anthony Trent bought himself a suit of clothes in the city and set out for London on the ten o'clock train. An army list showed him the names of the officers of the City of London Regiment. He decided to call upon the adjutant, a Captain Agile. It took him little time to find out that Edgell had resumed his former occupation of stockbroker and was living with his family at Banstead, in Surrey. Edgell was a golfer of distinction, and before the war had been a scratch man at a club on the downs. Five years' absence had sent his handicap up a bit, but he was engaged in pulling it down when a golfing stranger from the United States, giving the name of Trent, who had the club's privileges for the day, asked him if he could introduce him to a member for a round of golf. It so happened that most of the men waiting to play were ruddy-faced gentlemen with handicaps of from twelve up to twenty-four. They did not excite Edgel. "'Glad to,' he said heartily. He had been brigaded with Americans and liked them. "'Do you play a strong game?' "'I have a two handicap at Wickersall,' Trent said. "'Good business,' cried Edgel. "'We'll play together.' They played. They became intimate during the game and Edgell learned with regret that Trent was not one of the many American businessmen engaged in their work in London. Trent beat the stockbroker on the 23rd hole. "'If I could only put like that,' said Edgell, "'I'd have a chance for the Open Championship.' "'I wish I could drive a ball the length you do,' Trent said, not to be outdone. "'Of course you'll have dinner with us,' the stockbroker said. "'We don't dress for it any more since the war, so you've no excuse.' "'I learned to make cocktails from some of your fellows in France, so you ought to feel at home.' "'As home used to be,' Trent corrected. "'I'd love to come if I'm not putting you out.' Edgell's home was a half-timbered house, standing in an acre of lawn and flower garden. It was thoroughly comfortable. There seemed to be a number of children, but they did not obtrude. Trent could see them playing in different parts of the garden, the little ones with their nurse and the elder playing clock golf on a perfect green in front of the house.' always the quiet secure atmosphere of a home such as this brought to anthony trent a vision of what he had lost or rather of what he could never obtain little six-year-old marjorie edgel liked trent on sight and liking him announced it openly she told him what a great man her father was and how he had medals and things finally she asked the visitor whether he would not like to have medals it was the opportunity for which trent had been looking Ordinarily averse to talking of himself, he wanted to get on to the subject of the war with the late adjutant of the seventy-eighth. "'I have,' he told little Marjorie. "'Daddy,' she shrieked in excitement, "'Mr. Trent has medals, too.' "'So you were in the big thing?' Edgell asked. "'Honestly, wouldn't you rather play golf? "'I can get all the excitement I want on the stock exchange to last me the rest of my life. "'I enlisted in City Regiment as a private.' and I left it as adjutant after four years, and I'm all for the piping ways of peace. My battalion was the 78th, and we always had the luck with us. Whenever we got anywhere, something started.' "'The 78th Battalion?' Trent commented. "'I had a pal in your battalion, a pal who saved my life. I'm going to look him up next week. Curious that I should be talking to his adjutant. William Smith was his name. I wonder if you knew him.' I wonder if you know how many William Smith and John Smith are lying in France and Flanders with little wooden crosses over them. "'This one came through all right,' Trent said. "'At least ten William Smiths came through,' Edgell asserted. "'I think I remember them all. Which was your man? Describe him.' Trent lighted his cigarette very deliberately. To be asked to describe a man he had claimed as a pal, and yet had never seen face to face, "'was not easy.' "'I think you would recognize my William Smith,' Trent answered. "'If I told you he was not really William Smith, at all, but a man who had assumed that name as a disguise.' "'I understand,' Edgell exclaimed. "'A slight blond man, very erect and rather supercilious, with what the other man called a la voice. I remember him well. I had him up before me for punishment many times.' little infractions of discipline which he constantly committed. Used to rile me by his superior airs. Quite a mysterious person. Saved your life, did he? Well, he had all the pluck a man need have. I want to thank him for it, Trent said, but I've only known him as William Smith. The war-office people tell me he was demobilized three months back, and they have no address. If you'll tell me, in confidence, his real name, I can find him out.' "'But, my dear chap,' said Captain Edgell, "'I don't know it. None of us knew it. "'My sergeant-major swore he'd been a regular and an officer, "'but that's mere conjecture. "'He was a regular, now I come to think of it, "'and sent to us when his own regiment was wiped out in the autumn of 1914.' "'Who would be able to tell me?' Trent asked eagerly. "'The colonel knew,' Edgell declared. "'I sent him up to the old man for punishment once,' The Colonel looked at him, as if he could not believe his eyes. "'You're down here as William Smith,' he said. "'That's my name, sir,' said Smith. "'Then the Colonel knew him?' Trent asked. "'Undoubtedly. I was told to leave them alone. I should like to have asked Colonel Langley, but he's one of those men it's hard to approach. Doesn't mean to be standoffish, but gives that impression. One of those very tall men who seem to be looking through you, and taking no interest whatsoever in the proceeding.' "'I want to find out,' Trent said. "'Could you give me a letter of introduction?' "'Glad to,' edger replied. "'But he's like that native songbird of yours, a clam. "'He's a silent fighter. "'The men respected him and went to their death for him, "'but they would have felt it disrespectful to love him. "'He lives at a place called Deer Hall in Norfolk, "'a great county, swell with magnificent shooting. "'One of those places royalty stays every year for a week at the Partridges.' always thought it a funny thing he was given the command of a lot of cockneys, considering he was Sandhurst and tenth Hussars. till he married and chucked the service, but he made good, as you fellows say. While Captain Edgill was writing the letter, Trent had leisure to reflect that the identity of Private William Smith might remain permanently veiled in obscurity if Colonel Langley refused to talk. If the Colonel was not to be lured to disclose what Trent needed to know, the American would be left in a very unpleasant position." Until he knew whether his hunch was right or wrong, he could never again sleep in peace with the name of Anthony Trent as his own. He was in danger every minute. Smith might have tracked him to the liner to have him arrested in America. That he'd left the boat might easily be known. Therefore, in order to win twenty thousand sovereigns English money, or a half million francs in the coinage of the country where the two had spent weary months, Smith had only to start the hue and cry in England. The ports would be watched. In the end, they would get him. There was no escape over the borders to Mexico, or dash to safety over the Canadian frontier as he had planned to do under similar conditions of peril in his own country. Here, on an island, they had got him. He was weaving evidence that could be used against him by making this display of interest in Private Smith. Captain Edgell could give testimony that would not help his case. "'Here you are,' said Edgell genially. I've taken the liberty of calling you an old golfing pal. I've done all I could, but Colonel Langley's not easy of approach. I'm not at all hopeful. It isn't really serious, Trent explained after thanking him, but I'd like to see him again. He did undoubtedly save my life and carry me into safety. Quite a physical feat for one of his weight. What do you suppose he weighs? About ten stone seven, the other answered. "'That was one hundred and forty-seven pounds.' "'Trent was gradually building up a portrait of the man he feared. "'And about five feet seven in height?' he hinted. "'That's the man,' Edgell asserted. "'Quite a good-looking chap, too, if you care for the type. "'Rather too effeminate for me, although, God knows, he is a man.' "'It was not easy to see Colonel Langley, D.S.O.' Trent knew that county magnates such as he was did not see everyone who desired an interview. He stayed at a good hotel in Norwich and enclosed Captain Edgell's letter in one of his own. The answer came back in the third person. It was favourable and punctiliously polite. Colonel Langley would be happy to see Mr. Anthony Trent at eleven o'clock on a certain morning. Derham old Hall was a dozen miles from Norwich, City of Gardens, city of Norman cathedrals and many quaintly named parish churches. Trent hired a motor car and drove through the leafy Norfolk lanes. Colonel Langley's residence was the work of Inigo Jones and a perfect example of the Renaissance style. It stood at least a mile from the high road. The lodgekeeper telephoned to the house and Trent's driver was permitted to drive through the deer park and pull up before the great front doors. The room in which Anthony Trent waited for the colonel was evidently a sort of smoking-room. Trophies of the chase adorned the walls. It was evident Langley was a hunter of great game, and had shot in all parts of the globe from Alaska to Africa. He was a man of six feet four in height, grizzled, and wore a small clipped military moustache. It was not a hard face, Trent noted, but that of a man who had always been removed from pursuits or people who wearied him. There was a sense of power in the face, and that inevitable keenness of eye, which a man who commanded a regiment could not fail to have acquired. He bowed his visitor to his seat. He did not offer to shake hands. "'You have come,' he said politely, "from my former adjutant, to ask a question concerning the regiment, which he writes he could not tell you. I can think of nothing to which this would apply. He had every thread of the business in his hands. Captain Edgell could not tell me the real name of one of his men who enlisted under the name of William Smith. There was no change of expression on the rather cold face of the Lord of Broadacres. And what made Captain Edgell assume I could help you, sir? I don't know all the particulars, but he was certain you knew his real identity. If I do, Colonel Langley returned. "'I shall keep that knowledge to myself. "'I regret that you've had this trouble for nothing.' "'William Smith,' Trent told the other, "'saved my life. "'I want to thank him for it. Is there anything odd in that? "'You alone can help me, so I come to you. "'I want to help William Smith. "'I have money, which I should not have been able to enjoy, "'but for him.' "'You imagine, then, that William Smith is penniless, "'is that it?' "'He told me he was,' Trent answered promptly. "'I can offer him an opportunity to make good money in New York.' He looked at Colonel Langley as he said it. If Smith was indeed of a great family, the idea of being offered money and a job must amuse the one who knew his real name and estate. Sure enough, a flicker of a smile passed over the landowner's face. "'I'm happy to inform you,' he said, "'that Mr. Smith is living at home with his family.' financially secure enough not to need your aid.' "'That,' said Trent deliberately, "'is more than you can say.' "'I am not in the habit of hearing my word doubted,' the older man said acidly. "'I am not doubting it,' Trent said suavely. "'I mean merely to remind you that he may need my aid, although it may not be monetary aid. You will remember that there have been passages in Mr. Smith's life which have not been entirely creditable. "'Are you claiming to be friend or accomplice?' Langley snapped. "'Let us say friend and confidant. Trent smiled. "'Perhaps he made certain confessions to me.' "'To you also?' Langley cried. In that moment he had said too much. During that hour, when Edgell left the private alone with his commanding officer, the officer had obtained his confidence, and very likely, a confession.' he saw the soldier throw a quick glance at one of those old safes which disguised themselves as necessary articles of furniture trent's eyes dwelt on it no longer than the owner's did but he saw enough colonel langley had told him plainly that the confession was locked in the safe which looked like a black oak sideboard on which decanters and a humidor were arranged to me also trent repeated and it is because of it that i knew he did what he did "'for the reason he needed more money "'than a younger son could expect. "'Colonel Langley, "'I only want his real name. "'I want to help him. "'That's why I spoke of offering him money.' "'He'll be glad to know,' "'the colonel answered, "'that Mr. Smith is at present "'in no need of money.' "'You mean,' Trent said sharply, "'that you will not give me "'his real name and address?' "'I cannot tell you,' Colonel Langley answered. "'If you like, I'll write and say you have called, and give him the opportunity to do as he pleases.' Trent reflected for a moment. If Smith were not already aware of his presence in England, it would be very unwise to advertise it. He was beginning to see he'd been less than cautious in calling upon Edgel and Colonel Langley under his own name. "'I need not trouble you to do that,' he said. "'If you wish to conceal his name, it is no doubt your privilege.' and he will do well enough without my thanks." He made his chauffeur drive home at a temperate speed. The man knew all about the Langley's, and was glad to tell the affable stranger. As they passed through the gates, several carriages, laden with men and some station carts filled with baggage, passed into the gravelled drive. "'Gentlemen, come for the shooting,' the chauffeur volunteered. "'Tomorrow is September the 1st, when partridge shooting commences.' "'Colonel is a great shot, and the king comes here often, "'and the German Emperor has shot over those turnips in the old days. "'This is supposed to be the best part of the shoot in the kingdom, "'and the birds are fine and strong this year. "'Not too much rain in the spring.' "'I suppose there'll be a regular banquet tonight,' said Trent. "'Tomorrow night's the night,' said the chauffeur, grinning. "'Tonight they all go to bed early, "'so as to be up to an early breakfast and have their shooting eyes. "'The colonel's terrible man,' "'if any of the guns only wound their birds. "'They've got to shoot well tomorrow "'if they want to come here again. "'I know, because my uncle is one of the keepers.' "'The man was surprised at the tip "'his American passenger handed him "'when they reached the Maid's Head Hotel, "'and charmed with his affability. "'He told his fellows that Trent was a real gentleman. "'He did not know that his unsolicited confidence "'had given the American a hint "'upon which he would be quick to act.' As Trent had been driven along the Deerham Road approach to Norwich, he had seen a little cycle shop, where gasoline was sold and repairs made. The war had sent English people of moderate circumstances back to the bicycle again, and only the wealthy could keep cars or buy petrol at seventy-five cents a gallon. In his drive he had seen several people of seemingly good position paddling cheerfully through the lanes. The chauffeur had touched his hat to one and spoken of him as rector of a nearby parish, Cycles were to be hired everywhere, and the prevailing rate seemed to be sixpence an hour, or three and six for the day. After dinner, Anthony Trent found his way back to the little shop in the Dearham Road. The Wensome Garage, it proudly called itself. Here he said he wished to hire a bicycle for a day. As dusk fell, he was pedalling along to Dearham Old Hall. Few people were about, and those he passed evinced no curiosity. Avoiding the main road which passed in front of the lodge and gates by which he had entered, he hid his wheel between two haystacks which almost touched. Then he made his way through the kitchen gardens to the rear of the house. It was now ten o'clock, and the servants' part of the big house seemed deserted. Already the lights in the upper stories were evidence that some guests were retiring to rest well before the glorious first. From the shelter of the rose garden, He could see a half-score of men and women on the great terrace in front of the splendid house. He could see that they were all in evening dress. In a mosquito-less country, this habit of walking up and down the long stone terraces was a common practice after dinner. Trent came so near to the guests that he could hear them talking. The conversation was mainly about tomorrow's prospects. He learned there was little disease among the birds, that they were phenomenally strong on the wing and hadn't been shot over to any extent since 1914. Some guests deplored the fact that dancing was taboo on this night of nights, but it was the Langley tradition, and they must bend to it. "'Think of it,' he heard a woman say, laughing. "'Lights out at twelve! How primitive and delightful!' She yawned a little. "'I'm looking forward to it. We all stay up too late.' "'Good night, Duchess,' he heard the man say. "'Sleep well, and pray I may be in form.' "'Duchess!' In the old days, Anthony Trent would have thrilled at the title, for it meant invariably jewels of price and the gathering of the very rich. But he was waiting outside the masterpiece of Enigo Jones, not for any of those precious glittering stones for which he had sacrificed all his prospects of fame and honour, but for the documents which he believed were hidden in the iron box, that ridiculous peat covered with black English oak. It was another of the hunches which had come to him. He had never been more excited about any of the many jobs he had undertaken. As he sat among the roses, waiting for time to pass, he reflected that the few failures that had been his had not been attended by any danger. He had lost the pearls that were wont to encircle the throat of a great opera singer, because her maid had chosen an awkward hour to prosecute her amour with a chauffeur. The diamonds of the Mexican millionaire's lady were lost to him because the house took fire while he was examining the combination of the safe. But they would wait. He would yet have them both. The booty for which he had come tonight was more precious than anything he had ever tried for. It was probably the key to safety that he sought. Trent did not doubt that there was a document in the safe which would enable him to hold something over the head of Private William Smith. He waited until twelve had struck from the stable clock and the terrace had been deserted a half hour to open the doors leading from the terrace was simple anthony trent always carried with him on business bent, two strips of tool steel with a key blade at each end with these two t and v patterns he could open the world's locks a nine inch jimmy was easy to secrete this was of the highest quality of steel and looked to the uninitiated very much like a chisel but it differed from a chisel by having at its other end two brass plates, set at right angles to one another. These could be adjusted to what angles were needed by turning countersunk screw bolts. It was the ideal tool for Yale Spring locks. He did not need it here. The doors opened at will with the v pattern skeleton key. Great oriental rugs deadened sound, and the boards of the house were old, seasoned, and silent. He found his way to the room in which the colonel had received him with little difficulty, First of all, he opened the window, and saw that he could spring clear out of it at a bound, and land in a bed of flowers only three feet below. Then he came to the antiquated safe. The combinations were ridiculously easy. His trained ear caught the faint sounds as he turned the lever easily. These told him exactly the secret of the combination. It was not two minutes' work to open the doors. An inner sheeting of steel confronted him, but was opened by his jimmy. It was not safe to turn on the electric lights. In so big an establishment, with so many outdoor servants, there might be many to remark on unexpected illumination. His little torch showed him all he wanted to know. Colonel Langley had the soldier's neatness. There were few valuables in the safe. They would be presumably in his banker's strong boxes. There were packets of letters tied up and one long envelope. On it was inscribed, Not to be opened, in case of my death... This must be destroyed by my heir, Reginald Langley. On the envelope was a date, july twenty seventh, nineteen eighteen, and the single word Ladigny. Ladigny was a little village in France forever memorable by the heroic stand of the City of London Regiment when it lost so terribly and refused to retreat. Trent opened the envelope in such a way that no trace of the operation was seen. Then, for ten minutes, he read steadily. Almost a half hour was expended in copying part of it in a notebook. Then the envelope was resealed, and the safe closed. As he had worn gloves, there was no fear of incriminating fingerprints. He did not think anyone would notice that a jimmy had been used. Then he closed the safe and its outer doors of black oak. He permitted himself the luxury of a cigarette. He had done a good night's work. If Private William Smith had sufficient evidence to place Anthony Trent behind the bars. The master criminal had sufficient certain knowledge now to shut the mouth of the man he was tracking. Who would have thought a man reared in such a family would have fallen so low? It is a human failure to make comparisons whereby others invariably shine with a very weak light, but Anthony Trent was saying no more than the truth when he told himself that with Smith's opportunities he would never have taken to his present calling with Smith's opportunities, he would be sitting in a big room like this, and sitting in it without fear of interruption. The strain of the last few days had not been agreeable, and this strain must grow in intensity as he grew older. It was always in such peaceful surroundings as these that Trent felt the bitterness of crime, even when successful. He stopped suddenly short in his musing, and crushed the bright tip of his cigarette into blackness beneath his foot. Someone was fumbling with the door-handle, very quietly, as though anxious not to disturb him. He cursed the carelessness that had allowed him to leave it unlocked. He had not behaved in a professional way at all. Very cautiously he rose to his feet, meaning to leave by the open window when the door opened. Trent sank back into the shadow of the big chair. To make a dash for the window would mean certain detection. To stay motionless might mean he could escape later." Similar immobility had saved him ere this. The intruder closed the door, and his sharp ears told him it was locked. Then a soft treading form moved slowly through the dim light and closed the window, shut off his avenue of escape, and pulled across it two curtains which shut out all light. There were two other high windows in the room, and across each one was pulled the light-excluding curtains. Then there was a click and the room sprang into brilliance. Anthony Trent saw the intruder at the same moment the intruder stared into his face. It was a girl in evening dress, a beautiful girl with chestnut hair and a delicious profile. She wore an elaborate evening gown of a delicate blue and carried in her hand a fan made of a single long ostrich plume. Her hair was elaborately coiffured. She was, in fine, a woman of the beau monde, "'a fitting guest in such a house as this. "'But what was she doing in this room, at one o'clock at night, "'when the rest of the household had long been abed?' "'The girl saw a slender but strongly-built man of something over thirty, "'with a pale, clean-shaven face, shrewd, almost hard eyes, and a masterful nose. "'He looked like a rising English barrister, certain at some time to be a judge, "'or at least a king's counsel.' He was dressed in a well-cut suit of dark blue with a pinstripe. He wore brown shoes and silk socks. She noted he had long, slender hands, perfectly kept. He rose to his feet and smiled at her a little quizzically. "'Really,' he said, "'you almost frightened me. I was sitting in the dark making plans for the glorious first, which has been here almost an hour, when I heard you trying to open the door.' There was no doubt in her mind but that he was one of the guests who had arrived from London on the late train and had not changed to evening dress. There was a train due at Thorpe Station at half-past ten, and the motor trip would take forty minutes more. "'I had no idea anyone was here,' she said truthfully. "'Or I shouldn't have come. You see, one can't sleep early, even if one is sent to bed as we all were to-night.' She glanced at the clock. "'I'm not shooting to-morrow.' "'But if you are, why don't you turn in?' "'You know Colonel Langley is a fearful martinet where the shooting is concerned, and insists that every bird is killed cleanly.' It was plain that she wished to get rid of him. Trent was frankly puzzled. The girl had shown no fear or nervousness. Ordinarily, the conventions would have had their innings, and she would have hesitated at the possibility of being found alone with a good-looking man at such an hour, she would have excused herself and left him, in the belief that he was a guest she would meet to-morrow at dinner and dance with after. But she showed no such intention. He knew enough about women to see that she had no intention of waiting for the pleasure of a friendly chat. She had rather a haughty type of face, and spoke with that quick, imperious manner which had observed in British women of rank or social importance. "'I have neuralgia,' he said amiably, "'and I prefer to sit here than go to bed.' Perhaps you left something here. Can I help you to find it? I came for a book. Colonel Langley was talking about some African hunting story your Mr. Roosevelt wrote. So she knew him for an American. Well, she would find the American not easily to be gulled. There came to him the memory of another night in Fifth Avenue, when a woman who seemed to be of fashion and position had so completely fooled him and had been left in possession of a large sum of currency— He moved towards a bookcase in which were a collection of books on fishing and shooting. "'African game-trails,' he said. Here it is.' There was no doubt in his mind that the look she threw at him was not one of complete amiability. She wanted him to go. He asked himself why. It would have been easy for her to go and leave him, and the best way out of the difficulty, unless she had come for one specific purpose if she had come for something concealed in the room and needed it badly enough she would try and wait until he went trent was certain she had no suspicion as to his own mission in so big a house as Dereham Old hall fifty guests could be entertained easily and it was unlikely she should know even half of them he had observed that it was not the fashion in england to introduce indiscriminately as in his own country guests were introduced to their immediate neighbours but that appalling custom whereby one unfortunate is expected to memorize the names of all present at a gulp was not popular. Because she did not know him would not lead to suspicion. He was in no danger. Even a servant coming in would see in him only a friend of his employer. "'Thank you,' she said, taking the book with an appearance of interest. "'Do you know, I never thought to see Americans at Dearham Old Hall, with the single exception of Reginald's old friend, Connington Warren.' Colonel Langley is so conservative, but the war has broadened everyone, hasn't it, and stupid national prejudices are breaking down. "'Connecton Warren here?' he asked. "'He lives in England now,' she told him. His physicians warned him that prohibition would kill him, so they simply prescribed a country where he could still take this cocktail. "'You know him, of course.' "'A little,' he said. She wondered why he smiled so curiously. He wondered what this beautiful girl would say if she knew it was at Connington Warren's mansion in Fifth Avenue that he had started his career as a criminal. So that great sportsman, owner of thoroughbreds and undeniable shot, was in this very house. After all, it was not a strange coincidence. The well-known Americans, who love horse and hound with the passion of the true sportsman, are to be seen in the great houses of England more readily than the mushroom financier. "'What other people are there here, you know?' she demanded. "'I can't tell you till tomorrow,' he returned. "'I only said a word or two to the Duchess. "'She deplored having to go to bed so early "'and was disappointed at not being able to dance.' "'She's one of my dearest friends,' the girl answered. "'Which means you see her every fault,' he laughed. "'Isn't your neuralgia better?' she asked after a pause. "'Anthony Trent shook his head. "'I shan't sleep all night,' he said despondently. "'Going to bed would only make it worse.' She was obviously put out at this statement. "'Then you'll stop here all night?' "'At all events, until it gets light. "'It's only two o'clock now. "'If you are keen on big game-hunting, "'you won't sleep if you begin that book.' "'You'll frighten the servants in the morning,' she said later. "'I'll tip them into confidence,' he assured her. The girl was growing nervous. There were a hundred symptoms, from the tapping of her little feet on the rug to the fidgeting with the book and the meaningless play with her fan. She started when a distant dog bade the moon and dropped her book. It rolled under a table and Trent picked it up. But when he handed it back to her, there was an air of excitement about him, an atmosphere of triumph, which puzzled her. "'You look as though you enjoyed hunting for books under tables.' I enjoy any hunting when I get a reward for my trouble. "'And what did you find?' she asked. "'A little mouse under the chair?' "'I found a key,' he said. "'Someone must have dropped it,' she said idly. "'Not a door key,' he returned, "'but the key to a mystery. Being a woman, you are interested in mysteries that have a beautiful society girl as their heroine, of course. "'I really must disappoint you,' she said rather coldly. "'And I don't quite understand why you are not quick to take the many hints I have dropped. Can't you see I want to sit here alone and think? Your own room will be just as comfortably furnished. In a sense, this is a sort of second home to me. Mrs. Langley and I are related, and this room is an old and favoured haunt when I am depressed. Is it asking very much that you leave me here alone?' "'Under ordinary conditions, no,' he said suavely. "'These are ordinary conditions,' she persisted. "'I'm not sure,' he retorted. "'Tell me this, if you dare. "'Why have you the combination to a safe "'written on a little piece of mauve paper "'and concealed in the book on your lap?' "'She turned very pale, and the look she gave him "'turned his suspicion into a desire to protect her. "'The woman of the world air dropped from her, "'and she looked a frightened, pathetic, "'and extraordinarily lovely child.' "'What shall I do?' she cried helplessly. "'You are a detective?' "'Not yet,' he said, smiling, "'although later I tend to be. "'But I'm not here even as a great amateur. "'Consider me merely a notoriously good shot, "'suffering equally from neuralgia and curiosity. "'You have the combination of a safe concealed in this room, "'and you want me to go to bed "'so that you may take out wads of banknotes "'and pay your bridge debts. "'Is that right so far?' "'You are absolutely wrong!' she cried with spirit. "'I need no money and have no debts. "'There are no jewels in the safe.' "'Letters, of course,' he said easily. She did not speak for a moment. He could see she was wondering what she dared tell him. She could not guess that he knew of the three packages of letters, each tied green ribbon. It was, he supposed, the old story of compromising letters. Innocent enough.' but letters that would spell evil tidings to the jealous fiance They might have been written to Colonel Langley. Men of that heroic stamp often appealed to sentimental schoolgirls, and the colonel was undeniably handsome in his cold, superior way. His heart ached for her. She was suffering. What had seemed so easy was now become a task of the greatest difficulty. "'Yes,' she said deliberately. "'Letters.' letters i must have do you suppose i can stand by and see my host robbed if you have any generosity about you you can in this instance i only want to destroy one letter because if it should ever be discovered it will hurt the man i love most in the world anthony trent groaned he had guessed aright There was some man of her own class and station who did not love her well enough to overlook some little silly affectionate note sent to the Beau-Sabreur Langley, perhaps a half-dozen years before. It was a rotten thing to keep such letters. He looked at the girl again, and cursed his luck that she was already engaged. Then he sighed, and remembered that even, were she free, it could never be his lot to marry, unless he confessed all and he knew that to a woman of the type he wanted to marry this confession would mean the end of confidence, the beginning of despair. "'I shall not stop you,' he said. She looked at him eagerly. "'And you'll never tell?' "'Not if they put me through the third degree.' "'But oughtn't you to tell?' she asked. "'Of course,' he admitted. "'But I won't. I can see you're wondering why. I'll tell you. "'I've been in just such a position, and I did what you are going to do.' Without another word she went swiftly to the concealed safe and began to manipulate the lock. For five minutes she tried, and then turned to him miserably. "'It won't open,' she wailed. "'I'll have a shot at it,' he said gaily, and went down on his knees by her side. He soon found out why it remained immovable. It was an old combination.' She did not understand his moves as he went through the same procedure which had opened it before. She only saw that the doors swung back. She did not see him pry the iron sheathing back with a jimmy. It was miraculously easy. Then he crossed the room to his chair and lighted another cigarette. Help yourself, he cried, and picked up the book which had held the combination. The girl's back was to him, and he could not see what she was doing. He heard the scratch of a match being lighted and saw her stooping over the stone fireplace. She was burning her past. Then he heard her sigh with relief. "'I shall never forget what you've done for me,' she said, holding out her hand. "'It was little enough,' he said earnestly. "'You don't know just how much it was,' the girl returned, "'or how grateful I shall always be to you. "'If I hadn't got that letter, I shouldn't have got it but for you.' and to think that tomorrow we shall be introduced as one stranger to another. I'm rather glad I don't know your name, or you mine. It will be rather fun, won't it, being introduced and pretending we've never met before. If you're not very careful, the Duchess will suspect we share some dreadful secret.' "'The Duchess is rather that way inclined, isn't she?' he said. He held the hand she offered him almost uncomfortably long a time. She would look for him tomorrow in vain.' He supposed she would begin by asking if there were any other Americans there except Conington Warren. After a time she would find he was not a guest of the Langley's. She would come at last to know what he was, and with this knowledge there would come contempt and a deliberate wiping his image from her mind. Anthony Trent had no sentimental excuses to offer. He had chosen his own line of country. He looked at her again. It would be the last time. Perhaps there was a dangerously magnetic quality about his glance, for the girl dropped her eyes. Forsters," he said abruptly, sold his soul for a future. I think I'd be willing to barter mine for a past.' "'Au revoir,' she said softly. When she had closed the door, he walked across the room to shut the safe. What secrets of hers, he wondered, had been shut up there so long?' he found himself in a new and strange frame of mind. Why should he be jealous of what she might have written in the letter that was now ashes? She had probably thought hero-worship was love. She had a splendid face, he told himself. High courage, loyalty and breeding were mirrored in it. He wondered what sort of a man it was who had won her. He looked at the neatly tied bundle of letters. It seemed as though they had hardly been touched Suddenly he turned to the compartment where the long letter had lain, the letter from which he had made so many extracts, the letter it was imperative, Colonel Langley should believe to be intact. It was gone. In the hearth there were still some burned pages. He could recognize the watermark. Anthony Trent had amiably assisted an unknown girl to destroy a letter whose safety meant a great deal to him. If Colonel Langley were to discover the loss it would be easy enough to put the blame upon the bicycle-riding American who had pretended to be a friend of Private William Smith. As he thought it over, Anthony Trent saw that the girl in blue had not lied to him, had not sought to entrap him by gaining his sympathy, as the Countess had succeeded in doing before another open safe in New York. He had assumed one thing, and she had meant another. What was William Smith to this unknown beauty? Trent gritted his teeth. He was going to find out. At all events, he now knew the real name of the private soldier who had shared the dugout with him. The next thing was to find out where he lived. End of chapter 3